Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub podcast, I'll be interviewing Cal Evans. Cal is based in Jupiter, Florida, and has been working for the past 15 years with PHP and MySQL on OS X, Windows, and Linux. He's worked on projects of widely ranging size, including multi-million dollar applications. Cal also builds and is a popular uh, website and is a popular conference speaker, delivering both talks on technical subjects and also motivational speeches. And I believe he also likes bourbon, so if you ever see him at a bar, please feel free to buy him a shot. Um, Cal is the author of five LeanPub books, Signaling PHP, Iterating PHP Iterators, Going Pro, Culture of Respect, and most recently, Uncle Cal's Career Advice to Developers. A little bit later, I'll be asking Cal some questions about his books. Um, in this interview, we're going to talk about Cal's professional interests, his experience self-publishing using LeanPub, and ways we can improve LeanPub for him and other authors. So, thank you, Cal, for being on the LeanPub podcast and for sitting through that intro. Not a problem. I'm happy to be here. Um, I usually like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you became Cal Evans. Sure. Uh, but before I say that, you, you listed the five that I have I, I actually have released. You you skipped over the like ten books that I've started and never um, released, including such um, developer centric books as "Oh crap, why did I do that?" You know, <laughs> reviewing my old code. But um, no, back to my my origin story. Um, I started programming when I was 18 years old. Um, that was way back in the eight, early 80s. And um, you know, I, I started programming. I got married the same year. So, I mean, you know what that means. You know, I, I got married. I got a computer. I spent all my time programming because I'm a geek. So, But I, I started working on a Commodore 64, and all of a sudden I discovered that people would pay me to do this. And it was very surprising to me. So I started coding for a living. I, I've had various other um, career paths, short career paths. Uh, I used to do live concert videos. I used to um, direct and edit them. And at one point, I ran a printing company, but um, you know, old school, you know, offset press. But for the past 15 years, I've done uh, MySQL and PHP. And for the past 10 years, my focus has been on developers. Building better developers, and and that that is my goal is to help people become a develop better developer. On one of my profiles, it says, "I don't want to change the world. I just want to help you become a better developer." So, that that's where I am. I I'm just I'm, I'm old school. As long as people will still keep paying me to do this, I'll keep doing it. And uh, what are you working on currently? I am the manager of training and certification for Zend. So I handle, amongst other things, the the official PHP's or the official Zend PHP certification. Uh, Zend certified engineer. Um, I also manage the team that builds all the training and uh, and builds and delivers all of the online training. And then, um, of course, like every good developer, I have uh, in addition to the books, I have a couple of side projects. Um, Nomad PHP which is we get together one, twice a month now. We have two meetings every month. Um, we get developers together online, and I'll have a conference speaker come online and give one of the conference talks because not everybody can make it to a conference. So we get together, and we'll do this twice a month. And then uh, three or four times a year, really depends on my mood, um, we will do what we call Day Camp for Developers, which is I get five speakers, and we all get online. And that t- and Day Camp... We'll have teams get online, put up a um, show, throw it up on a projector, order pizza, you know, and we'll just spend the day focusing on one topic. Um, recently, we've done um, building application or modern techniques for building applications in PHP and things like that. So those are my side hustles. 
And uh, how did you get into conference speaking in the first place? I'm interested to hear that about that. The very first time I was ever asked to do a um, conference talk uh, was, I believe, right around 1995, and I was doing Fox Pro, and I was so scared that I actually told them, no, I, I can't do it. And um, I went on to do one the next year, but I co-presented with somebody. And then I, I just kind of ignored it. It didn't, wasn't really interesting to me until um, I went to work for Zend the first time, and this was in 2005, I believe, and... I was the community guy. I'm doing the air quotes things um, for those of you who can't see the video. Um, and I, um, we didn't have developer relations or developer um, advocacy or evangelism. I was just the community guy. And I was going along right nicely. I built a website for Zen called DevZone and you know I posted on there. And all of a sudden my boss calls me and says, hey, in three weeks Apple is having their Apple FileMaker conference in Orlando. There's going to be 1,500 developers there and you're the closing keynote. Okay, so I had three weeks not only to put it together, but to get my head around the fact that I was going to get up in front of people. And let's just say I was not awesome, okay? Um, I, I still don't think that I'm awesome, but I, I really feel that I shortchanged these people for, for what they had to pay to be there. But I did survive it. And uh, did you um, uh, do any kind of reading about about presenting or, or, or speaking or anything like that, or did you... Just go jump right in. No, no, no. I'm way too arrogant for that. Um, I'm a developer. I don't read the manual. Um, right. So, I no, I, um, I just figured I, I could do this. And so I put together a presentation. I put together a demonstration because this was FileMaker. And this was when um, Zend and Apple had worked together to build the gateway for PHP and FileMaker. And so I put together a little thing um, using the now defunct um, Netflix API. And it, it was really fun. And I learned my very first lesson of presenting at technical conferences, which is if you're presentation requires the internet make sure you have backup slides because oh, when oh i oh my god yes yeah when i when i um did my run through uh, while everybody was at lunch man everything clicked it was wonderful um because you know i had the entire network to myself because everybody was at lunch i get up to present and i um go in there and there are no ip addresses left in the network and they didn't have a dedicated um speaker network so i had no internet whatsoever so it's you know i i would point and describe and say if you could see this you'd say i got to get me some of that so <laughs> yeah i've done a fair amount of um pitching um and uh yeah you learn very quickly that you need to have all the equipment with you Yep. I, I think I ended up with like a 24 foot HDMI cable because <laughs> the situations that you find yourself in are just so totally unpredictable um, and uh, you don't want to be caught uh, unable to do what you came there to do. Um, yeah. And somehow that becomes the, the tech becomes your responsibility. <laughs> um, I was wondering, you, you talk about um, uh, on your profile about management by walking around. No, 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 no. Now, management exactly. by walking around was um, either Hewlett or Packard. That was what they were famous for. Mine is management by wandering around. Oh, Vastly different. Yeah, Vastly sorry, different. I got that wrong. Yeah, can you, can you <laughs> maybe explain the difference to us? Yeah, 
I learned um, – I ran a team uh, – when I coined that phrase, I was running a team um, back in Nashville, Tennessee, and this was uh, – <laughs> this, this sounds so stupid. It was around the turn of the century, and um, I had put everybody in cubicles, but I had these really high cubicle walls. I tried to give them as much privacy as possible, and um, I realized that even though I had 15 people working on three different teams and the team leads knew what they, everything was happening, I wanted to get a feel for you know – where you know where everybody's head was and so literally i would wander from cube to cube and i don't mean down the line i would go here and then i'd go visit her and then him it was just it was all over the place and uh, i would sit those um one of my uh, developers brought in two buckets of legos and that's how they would think problems through was play with legos so i usually if you couldn't find me i was over there at their desk playing with the legos but that's what i started doing and it, I, I learned that you know i could spend 5 minutes with somebody without interrupting their flow because if I see them in the flow, I'm not going to bother them. But I can spend five minutes with somebody, and if I do that every two or three days, I get, I know where everybody's head is, and I can take the temperature of the team. My team leads knew the project and knew how things were running and all that. I wasn't worried about that. I wanted to make sure I wasn't burning people out, um, that people were you know, feeling good about the project, things like that. In your book, um, Culture of Respect, you, you talk about, um, uh, you know, in addition to finding and hiring people, uh, you talk about keeping them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you say in that book, about what, how do you develop a good culture? What is a good culture for keeping developers in the medium or even the long term in your company? Really? I talk about that? I really need to read that book. No, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, you know, in line with the um, – what management by wandering around. One of the things that I am just really huge on is – I didn't realize there was a term for it till later, um, but what is called servant leadership. Um, I was the first person into the office most days. I was the one that fired up the coffee pot. Um, I we, we worked right next to this huge Target superstore. And so I would go over to Target once a week, spend 50, 60 bucks on candy, and I had bought everybody a candy jar. So on Monday mornings, I would wander around, and if your candy jar was empty, I would take your candy jar, take it back to my desk, and uh, fill it up and put it back on your desk. And, you know, I, I made sure that there was always coffee made. Um, that team, um, I'm, I'm not proud of the fact, but we got to the point where we were behind the eight ball, and we worked some long hours. And, um, you know, there's only so much pizza that one human can consume. So I started catering them from some very nice restaurants in the area, and and my food bill was um, three, four thousand dollars a month for for about two months while we were doing this, you know. But you know, I was asking a Herculean effort from these people. It was important to me that I showed them that kind of respect. Um, I also I sent um, flowers or appropriate um, gifts to all of their significant others. When the project was finally finished, um, everybody got gift certificates. Um, I think to I think most of them were to the melting pot, which you know high end fondue restaurant, enough to cover a nice meal for two and things like that to show not only them but their family and their significant others that n- me and the company really appreciated the, um, what they were having to go through. Now, that, you know, niceties and little things like that, that's like having a foosball table or a kegerator. It's not going to make the difference. But the respect, the fact that I took the time to do this, I didn't say we need to go do this. I didn't assign somebody to do this. I took care of making all these things myself to show them that I respect what they do. 
And quite honestly, that was a team we were running Java and Oracle, and I knew a little PLC um, SQL, and I, you know I can read Java, but I couldn't do their job. I couldn't dive in and help them. So I did the next best thing. I tried to take care of everything else. That was also the office where we had two doors into the developer area. Both of them had combination locks on it. And if you weren't a developer or my direct manager who was the um, CIO, you did not have the combo. Even the COO and the CEO had to be escorted in and out. That's really interesting. I've never heard of uh, uh, having locks like that. Um, uh, but what a, what a comfortable space that probably provides for people knowing that you yep. can't suddenly sort of look over your look up and there's the CEO wondering why you're playing with Legos and then you've got to explain. Um, uh, I was wondering, approaching the subject negatively, um, can you maybe talk a little bit about the worst workplace culture you've, um, you've seen or worked in or maybe, the, 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 I guess I was going to say the worst example, the best example of poor management um, you've, ever, you've ever seen. It's funny because I've actually got a blog post on my blog called Good Boss, Bad Boss in which I break down four of my bosses. And two of them were my mentors and two of them were Satan incarnate. And one of them was um, I, I was working for my parents' company. Um, and so I'm, you know, I'm the boss's son. So this is obviously not a great situation to begin with. Um, but And I'm the only computer person in the entire company of 40. I'm the computer guy. And uh, we were using an accounting system – I believe at this point we'd migrated to a Fox Pro system, but the um, the sales manager kept saying these numbers don't look right. These numbers don't look right. You know, these numbers. I said, you're saying these numbers don't feel right. I can show you the line items where this data is coming from. These numbers are right. And she looked at me in front of everybody and says, I don't think you're a good programmer. I don't trust these numbers, and walked away. You know, even though I'm the boss's son, you know, there, there, there's limits to what one person can put up with. So um, that was it. Was at that point I decided um, it was time to make a career change and you know get out of the nest, move out of mom and dad's company. And um, you know, I had enjoyed my time there, but it, it was time to go. That was the absolute worst because this person had no concept of how to treat people. This um, this person was an old school command and control manager. And you know, I, I don't know anything about managing accountants or salespeople. Maybe that's how you manage them. You don't manage developers that way. Um, and if you, I, I'm famous for, I'm famous for making enemies by saying, if you've never been a developer, you have no business managing developers. And this person had never managed a developer; they didn't understand deadlines or anything like that. And so it came through, and they, they were horrible manager. Yeah, it's interesting. I was talking to. Um an author named Janelle Klein recently um, uh, on this podcast about issues around this at, at, at a kind of theoretical level like that. Um, and um, uh, one of the images I like to convey the difference, I mean, not having been a developer myself, I mean, I was kind of hazed by having uh, to internationalize LeanPub when I, when I started. Um, but uh, is that um, a lot of management practices are actually based, like, since ancient times, on visual cues. So as a manager, you can just, whether it's, you know, stacking bricks for the pyramids and you're working with people under horrible enslavement or bricklayers in Victorian times, as a manager, you can stand and watch um, and you can see progress. Are the bricks getting stacked? 
Um, but with developers, that's completely gone. Um, yeah. uh, all, all those ancient instincts about ways that whether they were ever good or ideal or not did work. Um, those, all those ways of managing people, like watching what they do just completely blows up when you, when your worker, I'm doing the scare quotes now is sitting, is sitting in front of a screen typing away. I mean, and even if you do look at what they're doing, maybe you've, if you've never, and, and I'm just sort of supporting your point, if you've never been a developer, well, you have no idea what you're looking at. Oh yeah. Um, but you also, there's other things you won't understand as well. Like, so they're on Slack. You don't go like, get back to work. <laughs> guy you know yeah. like then that's work hacker news that's work facebook that's work you know yep. however whatever you're sort of you want your developer to have a wide net of information that they're receiving and engaging with all the time i had another manager um when i was working in nashville that this was back when i this was my last fox pro job and he had been a Fox Pro programmer, but if you don't know Fox Pro, Fox Pro started off as a procedural language and morphed into an object-oriented language. It's a wonderful way to learn object-oriented concepts because I already knew the language. I could concentrate on the concepts. But he you know, considered himself a very good Fox Pro programmer, but I was an object-oriented programmer, and he considered me just a little better than him. Well, he gave me this task to do, and it took me about two weeks because this was some Deep stuff because Fox Pro, because it was a compiled language, we you know we did nested inheritance and all this because you didn't pay any penalties for it at that point. And so I was digging through this legacy code and rebuilding it. And uh, he came up to me one day, and he just had enough. It was a Friday. I he he just he needed to blow off steam. So he yelled at me for two hours because he asked me, "When's this going to be done?" I said, "I have no idea." And so he yelled at me for two hours. And I went back to my desk totally energized, okay, because, you know, I was feeling the, the burn at this point. Um, and I, I finished it up about an hour and a half later. I finished the project up. I didn't know that was the point, you know. But he had no concept. Even though he was a developer, he was the old command and control, you do what I say, work harder, you know, that kind of stuff. Of course – I left that company, and I was told that six months later he was escorted out of the building by security because um, HR had him escorted out because he explained to a female business analyst that he could train a German shepherd to do her job. Oh my! Yeah, <laughs> we all got a we all got a kick out of that. We we got together for a developer reunion one day, and we all got a kick out of that one. <laughs> wow! I mean, yeah, it's uh, I guess it's easy to judge from a distance, but you know, if people have one flaw they I mean we all have flaws but a person has one kind of flaw that manifests itself in aggressive behavior they might have they might have others um, on that note um, actually in the in the book culture of respect you talk about building a character sheet um, for I think potential hires um, mm -hmm. like you would playing Dungeons and Dragons and I found that really interesting and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that idea and what the division is between what you call soft skills and hard skills you know it is like Dungeons and Dragons. I'm so deep into marketing that these days it is a persona that you build. But no, it's it's a D and D character sheet. It's really what you're what you're building, um, and this forces the hiring manager, not HR. Okay, I'm not a fan of HR. And in my entire life, I've met one person who works in HR that I did not absolutely hate, um, and she did get on my nerves sometimes. But um, the, the hiring manager has to sit down and think through 
what do I really need this person to do and what are the skills I'm looking for and what are the traits I'm looking for because there's a huge difference. Skills are hard. Can this person code in Java? Can they do C++? Can they do PHP? This kind of stuff. Um, Traits are can they communicate their ideas with others? Can they have other people communicate their ideas to them because I've worked with developers who could tell you exactly what they were thinking in ways you could understand. But if you explain to them that they're off base and you needed them to go this way, they would go ballistic on you. So, um, you know, those, those are the differences. And I urge managers to sit down and think it through because if you don't, what you end up with is what we call the kitchen sink um, job ad, okay? You need 15 years experience in PHP 7.0 or better. You need um, Photoshop. You need HTML. You need to be able to stand up your own Linux server, all of this stuff, which, you know, sounds real great, but really all you needed somebody to do was to manage this application that you've got running on a server or, you know, maintain this application. So, Think it through. Don't ask for everything. And, you know, um, I, I, I rail against HR um, because HR usually likes to add things in. Well, this job requires Photoshop. Well, no, it's a developer. He's working, she's working in a command line. There's no Photoshop equivalent of the command line, you know? So, no, we don't need this person to be able to do Photoshop. Well, it'd be nice to have. No, not really. It wouldn't. It's just going to limit what you the the candidates you get to those people. Honestly, if you've got a kitchen sink um, ad, you're not going to cast a wide net and get everybody. What you're going to get is those people who will apply to anything because the um, people that you actually need see all of that and understand you have no concept of who you actually want, and so they just pass over it. I'm curious about your thoughts about interviewing people um, once you've got the ad out there, the proper ad. Um, mm-hmm. You've managed to fight off HR um, <laughs> from corrupting the process. Um, and there you are in the interview with the person. I was just curious about what some of your thoughts are about what to do and, and what not to do. Sure. Um, there used to be a site a long time ago called Fresh Meat. It was a sister site to Slashdot, which uh, I hope people still remember Slashdot. Um, and I actually wrote an article for um, Fresh Meat one time called Nerd Herding, and it's now up on my blog. And I talk about this very thing. My process is this. I put out the ad. I do work with HR. We get the the legal requirements covered, but I don't let them add things like skills and all and traits and all this. I get the ad out there. I get the resumes unfiltered. HR can't tell the difference between Java and JavaScript. I need to actually see them, and I'll filter through them, and I'll pick um, – I was hiring one time out in California, and I'd get 150 resumes a day, and I would pick 20. You know, I, and this was just posting on Craigslist. But I'd pick 20 out of that that seemed reasonable, and I would fire off an email. And um, I, I don't go for trick questions, but I go for questions that are, cannot be easily answered. They're going to require some thought. Um, you know, I would say, hey, I uh, got your resume. Thank you. Why do you program? You know, things like that. And I would look for some insight to the person. And honestly, if they um, gave me anything at all, that would usually warrant a phone screen. Um, so that would – that would usually filter out about half of them. So out of that 150, I got 20. Out of 20, I got 10 people that I would sit down and call, and I would talk to them on the phone for five or 10 minutes, and um, you know, just 
get a feel for the person. I already know that the person has the technical skills, or at least is saying that they have the technical skills. Um, and you know, I know that they are a little bit insightful because they responded. I just want to talk to them. But out of the um, 10 people that I would talk to on the phone, 8 to 10 of them would usually end up in an um, interview with the team. At that point, I turned it over to the team. Because I told everybody I hired, I don't have to work with you. I just have to manage you. These are the people you have to work with. They're the ones that you're going to have to impress. So we would do the team interview. And I would call everybody into the room. And this is a very expensive way to interview. But it's still less expensive than making a bad hire decision. So I would bring everybody in, juniors up to my architects, We'd sit down in the room. I would not say a thing after I introduced the candidate, and they would go around the table just asking questions. Um, as long as it was legal to ask the question, there were no um, filters that I put in place, um, and um, they would ask until they got finished. I, I didn't stop them, and I think the longest one we went was an hour and a half, and we were literally interviewing a rocket scientist. He worked in. Uh, he worked at. Um, what is it in Huntsville? Redstone? Anyhow, he worked at the, 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 the NASA center there in Huntsville. He was literally a rocket scientist, and it was fantastic. We ended up hiring him. He was great. But um, then I would thank everybody. I would escort them out the door – or escort the candidate um, back out the front. The team would stay there, and then we'd sit and talk. You know, what would you think? You think this, you think that. And then we would take a vote right then. While it's fresh on everybody's mind, I'm going to take a vote. If I had one – person say no, then immediately that candidate is no longer viable. Now, that seems very harsh, okay, because you've got junior programmers that have the same weight as my architects, and the juniors had to go first. I didn't want them me-tooing one of my senior developers, okay? So we went around the room. Everybody got a vote. In hiring um, over 50 people in this way, I had two that we just walked away from because um, somebody voted no. Because by the time you get to that point, everybody is either yes or no, this is not going to work. And when I say I had two, we walked away from I had two, we walked away because we had one vote no. Okay, Usually it, it was pretty obvious by the time I got back to the room, you know, the mood of the team and um, whether this was going to be a viable candidate or not. Um, and then you know, at, at that point – and I built some great teams using this methodology because by the time the candidate got on board, they already knew everybody. You know, the people were comfortable with them already. We had already started that break-in period. And um, so you get right down to getting to work and building those um, bonds and those uh, – building that esprit de corps that is so vital on a um, development team. Because when you have to work with someone on a project that is overdue – I hate to use the analogy death march because that, that kind of minimizes what a death march really is. And what we're doing is long and uncomfortable, but it's not really a death march. Um, but when you get into one of those situations where you work in long hours, you'd better be comfortable with the person in the next cube or two cubes over or tempers are going to start fraying. And I, I never had that problem. Yeah, that sounds like a really fascinating process. I mean, I can just imagine the um, uh, the – impact it might have on people if they see someone that they've all endorsed maybe having difficulty you know they might be motivated more motivated to help them yes. than otherwise and knowing that you've got a kind of collective buy-in 
And that was the thing. The team had buy-in on each hire, so the team was committed to each hire. I did not bring people in and say, here's your new teammate, um, other than the very first person. You know, the first person on any team, I'm the one that hires them. Um, after that, it's a collaborative effort. Um, in your latest LeanPub book, Uncle Cal's Career Advice to Developers, which I gather is the text of a talk. Yes, um, text of a keynote that I gave. Yeah, you, you write about how, um, uh, and this is, I guess, more from the individual rather than the team perspective, but you write about how the job will never love you back. Yes. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you mean by that. Um, this is um, this was advice given to a friend of mine, Samantha Quinos, up in New York, and she said her high school counselor gave her this advice: "The job will never love you back." I've been I've worked for um, San Francisco startups. I've worked for I've worked in that culture. I've worked in the we've all got to pull together and do things. And uh, the team I was building in Nashville that you know we were working so hard on. I was there almost the entire time. I liked to be the first one in, and I, I hated to do it, but I wanted to be the last one out. Now, we had some, I had some people working till 2, 3 in the morning. I'd let them stay. But you know, I, I was there literally um, 14 to 16 hours a day towards the end there. And um, the COO would walk out at 2 o'clock to make his tea time, you know? And you, you'd see the salespeople wander in and wander out for early lunches and stuff like that. And it didn't hit me until Samantha and I got to talking at a conference one time because we get to hang out each other, uh, hang out with each other at conferences. And she said that, and it just struck me. That's the problem. Everybody tells you, you've got to love your job. You've got to give everything towards the company. Well, the only people that's actually going to make anything off this company are the founders and the investors. Okay, You're not going to get anything for, but your paycheck. So you have to be, when it comes to your career, you have to be a mercenary. You've only got so much time to trade for money, so you've got to make sure you're trading it for the most money you can get, money and benefits. And if you love the company and you think it's wonderful, hey, that's great. But if you think that the company is going to love you back, it's not. You're not family, and if you want to put that to the test, be the slack-ass cousin who doesn't work for two weeks and see if you still get the paycheck. Not going to happen. You're not family. You've got to treat it like a business. Uh, that's a great lead-up to, I think, my next question, which is um, uh, you've got a great line in the book where you say, some days I've been the windshield, some days I've been the bug. Um, and I really like that image. And I was thinking a little bit about it, and I realized there, in this context there might be an interesting ambiguity there that I'd like to ask you about. So um, uh, especially if you're working in startup land, you know, that you can interpret that as being, you know, sometimes you've got to do really uh, unpleasant types of work. Um, and then this is actually a part of being responsible um, in, in yeah. your role. Is that what you meant or were you talking about something else when you, when you, um, actually, that comment is much more of a day-by-day -day comment. Some days you're going to knock it out of the park, and some days the you know the bat's just going to hit you. 
you know, and I have a version of that that says some days you're the windshield, some days you're the bug. If I'm the bug today, let me be an armor piercing bug, you know, because I want to blow through. Um, but you're right. You do. There are times when you just have to power through it. And I have another talk, um, which I believe is actually um, one of the books called Going Pro. And in it, I talk about a similar um, topic in that. There are times when you as a team member just cannot find your happy place on that team. For whatever reason, they've made a technical decision. You can't get along with your manager. Whatever reason, you can't find your happy place. As long as the paychecks are clearing, you be an adult, you give your 110%. But you start looking because if you're not happy, you owe it to yourself and to that team to go find another job. You're not doing that team any favor by hanging around if you're pissed off. Because if you're pissed off, you're not happy, You're going. it's going to affect your work no matter how much you think it's not. So you give your 100% while you're there on the job. You don't slack. You don't, oh, I'm going to goof off today. They'll never know. What are they going to do, fire me? Well, no, you're an adult. Do the right thing. But start looking around, and as soon as you can do it, exit gracefully. And I don't mean get so pissed off that you rage quit because rage quits feel really good for about a day. I know. I rage quit at McDonald's one time. The most pointless gesture I've ever made. But rage, rage quit feel really good until you call your buddy who you knew was a sure thing because they're looking for somebody just like you. And they, your buddy says, yeah, uh, my manager was talking to your previous manager. You kind of left them in a lurch. We can't talk to you anymore. All of a sudden, that rage quit don't feel so good anymore, you know? So be an adult, do your job, but if you're not happy, you owe it to yourself and the team to find you something else. Don't be the bug every day. Um, I was wondering, um, thanks for that. That's really great. Um, uh, uh, I just love that image. Um, and uh, are you working on it? I mean, you said you, you mentioned at the beginning that I left out of my introduction your unpublished books on Lean Pub, and I was... <laughs> Wondering if there's one in particular that you're more focusing on now, or if you even have a do you have a plan for what your next book might be to release? I am almost finished with my next book, which I don't know if it's on Lean Pub or not. My wife actually handles all of that now. Uh, used to be, I, I you know I did it, and that's why I did Lean Pub because Lean Pub is easy enough that even I can um, can can concentrate on writing and not have to worry about the the book production. Um, it's a wonderful platform, um, but I don't know if she's put this one up yet. I, I have full intention to put it up there, and it's called Spin a Good Yarn, and it is. Um, Everything developers need to know to build presentations, and I don't mean build slide decks because my slide decks suck. Okay, My slide decks are white backgrounds with black text, and I upgraded on my last one and actually put a picture of myself and a picture of one of my books. I mean that, that's a graphical upgrade for me. Um, but everything else that you have to do from coming up with the concept to writing the abstract to getting a title that will actually convince the conference organizer to bother to scan your abstract to the practice to how you do all of this and then what do you do after you present you know how to be a good speaker for a conference and not just a good presenter and um, i've got book i will never ever do this again but i recorded an audio version of it and um 
oh my god, editing audio. And I, you know, I grew up around audio, but having to edit an hour and a half worth of audio and take out, <gasps> you know, because it just seems like I take these huge breaths on the microphone. Um, having to edit all this out is a pain. But I got the the book, the audio. Um, five or six videos to go with it and, and all of that, and I'm putting it up. Um, it'll be at, and this is the worst URL I could find, spin-a-good-yarn. Or you can just go to my blog and there'll be a picture of the book up there. Um, I was wondering, um, why did you choose, I mean, you partly answered it already, but why did you choose to um, self-publish on LeanPub? Uh, well, that's... That's two questions. Why did I choose to self-publish? Um, I have actually published um, through a traditional publisher before, and I got 20% of my book sales, and I just felt like I deserved more. Uh, one of the reasons that Culture of Respect is not on Amazon is because you uh, because of the price, I would only get 35% royalties. No. Amazon doesn't deserve the 65% royalties. They didn't do anything worth of that. So I – that's only available on LeanPub because you guys have a good platform and it's fair. Um, <clears throat> but that's the reason I self-publish is um, I, I know I could probably sell more. I don't know that I could make more, and I just like the control. Why did I use LeanPub? Um, I got to researching what it would take to do it. And I actually had um, systems set up, and I was playing with them on how to create a Kindle because that was my focus. I wanted to create a Kindle book, okay? And it was just a pain in the rear end. And, yeah, I've got Kindle Gen, and I've got all this other stuff, and I can edit the XML, what is it, the, the OPF file or whatever it is by hand, and I can do all this stuff. But that's not what I want to do. I want to write books. And then I came across LeanPub, and I don't know if I found you because of Google search or somebody introduced me, but about the time that I found you, all of my friends found you also. And all, you know, it was, um, it was there for a while. I thought all you published was computer books because every time I turned around, somebody's publishing a computer book on Leap. I'm like, okay, this is the platform I need. And I have published, I think you said five, I've started, um, three or four more and I have plans for at least three or four more, um, next year. And I have looked at doing my own thing. I mean, because um, while LeanPub is a wonderful platform, I want a little more control over things like style sheets for PDFs. I want to make things where possible. I want to make it look really nice, you know. And my wife's a graphic designer, and she says, well, this is all we can do in LeanPub. And so I um, looked at several other um, platforms. I've even got a droplet out on DigitalOcean that has um, – I forget the – oh, Pandoc. that has Pandoc installed, and yeah, that took a weekend. Um, and some PHP code that will take – you know, I can publish the markdown, and it will uh, – I've got project stuff that will convert it to HTML and PHP that will create the OPF. And I'm like, this just isn't worth it. LeanPub gives me most of everything I need, and I can – I can either figure out the rest or live without the rest. I don't have anybody screaming at me. If only your PDFs were a little more colorful, I would buy them. So Yeah, that's a really interesting um, challenge for self-published authors is choosing that, that sort of um, uh, to what degree do you focus on in the end after you're done writing? Do you focus on formatting or do you just go ahead and start, and start selling? Um, uh, and one thing, one feature we developed or we, we launched a few months ago was upload um so you can actually you can i mean one one way you could use leanpub is to write your book in progress on leanpub and then when you're done we have an indesign export feature that you can use mm. to so then you could take it and then get it to your book designer 
Um, and then you can actually switch writing modes to the feature that we launched a few months ago, which is upload your book. Um, so you can actually right. you can actually upload a PDF and or a Mobi and or uh, an EPUB file um, that you've made yourself. So if you've and we've got quite a few very good looking books that people spend a lot of time, you know, and with working even with teams of people to get them to look really nice, and then they can upload them to LeanPub, and um, they can you know do that as many times as they want, and then they can take advantage of our you know high royalty rate. Um, and all, a lot of our other features, like you know, email the author, email your readers, um, uh, things like that, and the coupons, bundling, things like that that aren't really available on Amazon. And I just wanted to actually address that point that you brought up at the beginning of that that great answer, which was that for books that are priced higher than nine ninety nine on Amazon, they drop the royalty rate from seventy percent to thirty five percent, and yeah. it's it's for sort of like. I guess what one could, for people who aren't familiar with it, there's a whole discourse around ebook pricing. And there's been a controversy since the Kindle came out, basically, around this. But Amazon, it, it's had a complex and evolving sort of position. But one way of describing their position is books, ebooks should not be priced higher than $9.99. Um, and so, and they want that idea in people's heads. And when I say people, I don't just mean readers, I mean authors and publishers as well. Um, which is partly where the controversy comes in. And so if you've got a book that's worth $9.99 and you've got a book that's worth $11 on Amazon, you'll make more money from the book that's worth $9.99 per sale from the book that's worth less. Um, so it's, it's an interesting strategic move on Amazon's part. But that's one of the things that does make selling on LeanPub different, that if you've got a book in particular, I mean, one of the reasons LeanPub is popular with people who write technical books is that there are often books that are ought to be worth more than nine ninety nine? Um, I, yeah. I mean, you can imagine if if reading a book gives you skills that means you can now uh, command a higher price for your consulting per hour. How much is that book worth to you? Well, lots. Um, uh, yeah. And we we've actually even got one book right now um, that's about a, a getting a technical certification that's got a two hundred dollar minimum price. Um, mm. And people are buying it. it. This is a you know a, a book that's got no DRM, a self-published ebook, but it's it's worth that much money to a lot of people. Well, I fully support authors being able to charge whatever they want, um, and I fully rail against Amazon's um, control of the market. But I'm happy to put my 9.95 and below books up there. I've got a series of books called Learn One Thing Books, and they're short books, specifically technical books. They focus on a single topic, and they're 9.95. And what I do is I publish them on LeanPub, take the Moby, shove it up on Amazon. It, you know, it's nothing, nothing deep or anything. I don't recreate it um, just for Amazon. I take what you give me and just put it up there. Um, but I did not know that you had the upload thing. That's really cool. I'm going to have to um, start doing that because my wife is a designer. So I'll sit down and I, I usually start in Google Docs um, because that's what I'm most comfortable in. And she'll take it and she'll start breaking it up into text files and putting it on LeanPub. But now that she can um, produce it, you know, I think she will start using that um, that workflow a whole lot better. And I don't have to fire up Pandoc because yeah, I got friends that use Pandoc and they they love it, but that's not what I want to do. I, I don't want to manage yet another system. And I thought about actually writing my own, and I'm like, oh, my God, why? You know, um, they, they, just more code to maintain, you know. So um, 
LeanPub is not a perfect platform. I've had disagreements with y'all, although that was early on. I think you've resolved most of the issues I had. Um, it is not a perfect platform. It is a platform that has served me very well, and um, I'm very pleased with um, with the service I get from you guys and will continue to publish my stuff um, on LeanPub and, um, you know, Hope, hopefully help make I put a few pennies in your pocket so that you can keep doing this. Thanks. Um, thanks. Really appreciate that. And we, uh, we appreciate you being a LeanPub author. Um, uh, and I think you've been around uh, for quite some time in LeanPub's life, life, lifetime, so we really appreciate that. Um, uh, my last question um, is uh, about self-publishing. And it, again, is, is, it, is um, interacting with readers something that you do? Is it important to you to sort of get emails from readers or get communications from readers with questions about your books or suggestions or anything like that? I don't get a lot of interaction with readers over email. I get um, uh, occasionally I will get tweets, um, and I love the fact that you put a, a, a tweet in the first the front of the book where you know tweet out that you bought this book because I've had people do that and it's awesome. But I go to a lot of um, PHP conferences, and most of my audience is PHP developers. Um, even for my non-technical, that's mostly who reads it. And um, so I will sit down, and I get to sit down at lunch and talk to people, and they say, okay, you know, you said this, but what did you mean? And I get to talk with them, and they give me feedback. Matter of fact, I had somebody write me today. Um, I've got one of my books, and he, he gave me a long list of, you know, it, the book is on um, creating brown bag lunch programs. He says, I like your book. It does. It, it has a lot of good points, but here's how we're doing it, and I think your readers could benefit from that. And so I'm about to go, um, hopefully in October, go into a revision cycle, produce a new version of that based on Jeremy's feedback. Okay. Well, great. Uh, yeah, thanks. It's, it's interesting. I always just love to hear about how the different approaches that people take in the way um, that, uh, you know, publishing can, books can be part of a wider kind of environment that you're operating in talking at conferences and things like that. Um, well, thanks very much for your time today, Cal. I really appreciate it. Um, and thanks for being a Lean Pub author. Hey, thank you for the platform. <laughs>